I'm Adrian Sykes. Welcome to Did You Know? The podcast dedicated to telling the stories of the executives of colour who have led the way in the UK music business. In this episode, we're joined by artist manager and senior vice president of Warner Music Group, Trenton Harrison-Lewis. Trenton shares his story of a long distinguished career in the music industry, how Chuck Dean named his management company, and how he went from artist manager to VP and label head. I don't look at myself as any record aficionado. I'm just a lover of music that I like. But through the grace of God, I've been able to look after and manage, be friends with a, with a bunch of artists that I feel is in, incredible. However, as always, we started by asking Trenton why he chose a career in the music industry. Because I love music. I'm a lover of music. You know, it's the thing that keeps my spirit. There's uh, music for all emotions, all times. I grew up around music. I'm from a West Indian Jamaican heritage, and there was music always in the house, whether it be jazz, Jim Reeves, Pat Boone... All the other tunes, you know, you'd hear them. You'd hear them loudest on, on, on a Sunday, but you'd always hear them. Some Elvis, some Cliff Richards. The music was the music was always there in the background. So I tried a couple of other jobs and I just kept being drawn into music. Music was was the hobby round the jobs. And then it just became the job and became my you know, a way of taking care of my family. I'd say, I mean, listen, we've known each other a long time on separate paths, but, you know, with success at varying times. But your journey is actually quite unique because most people start up record companies and then end up in management. You've taken a really, a, a different route in and we will get to that as we go. But tell me about your entry point into the business because you mentioned at the top that you did other things before you tried to get into the business or before you really made that first step into the business wholesale. So how did you find your way into the music business professionally? I entered as an amateur. Um, I used to roll around with a sound system from West London called Rap Attack. Uh, Milton and his brothers and the DJ Alistair. Um, and we used to do illegal raves or illegal parties in various places <laughs> around the country. Um, and they also had a residency, which they still have, I believe, in the carnival. So along with Norman Jay and Femi Femme and Mastermind and, and the other sound systems, we had a spot um, where we would uh, play every carnival. And um, from there, we had uh, two girls that used to come on the set and they used to rap over the mic um, while Alistair um, was doing his, doing his thing. We managed to get a deal at Jive. Um, they were called the Wee Papa Girl Rappers, two girls, Sandra and Timmy, T.Y. Tim, from Acton. <laughs> Did a block of flats <laughs> in Acton. But he used to come on the set. Managed to get a deal, signed for a pound to jive. And the second record, they put out a record called Faith, which was a George Michael cover. 
And the second record they put out was a record called We Rule. We Papa Rule the Dance. And, and that record flew. And from that record flying, I started managing them with my brother Clyde. And that record charted when the charts were proper charts, selling proper amounts of records, vinyl. Um, and the record ended up, I think, at number seven in the national charts. I think it was number one or something in Holland. And that was really the journey into the music business. I had my mentor, Danny D, who brought me into the business in the first place by, you know, allowing me to be around him and in studios and at the record labels. And when he was out on the road doing promo with Loose Ends and and so on and so forth, that's where I got my... Because <laughs> it ain't easy, my rough upbringing into the music <laughs> with with our, our dearly departed friend Erskine Thompson, who was an amazing promo marketing guy, one of the one of the only couple that was around black men in the industry at that time. There was Erskine, there was Keith Harris, there was a kid that managed Aswad, Les Payne. Um yourself, um, you know, there wasn't a lot of the, us in there. Mambo, Sharma from Birmingham. They were professional. You guys were professional. Me and the kind of the amateur got kind of dragged in through those guys. And it so happened that when the girls took off, I got a call from um, America because we was trying to do some stuff in America. And I got a call from a guy who's still a dear friend to me, um, Leo Cohen, who was managing a bunch of acts in America. He was a partner, worked very closely with Russell Simmons. So Russell Simmons had Def Jam and Leo was, Leo and Big D were the, the, the management company for Def Jam, as well as managing Def Jam acts. They managed a ton of other acts. Run DMC, LL Cool J, Big Daddy Kane, a tribe called Quest with Baby Chris, um, Della Soul, Beastie Boys, Eric B and Rakim, a whole bunch of acts. And what Leo wanted to do, he wanted to co-manage with me, the girls, the Wee Pappas. The records were growing in the States and it was a, it was a way in for us, a, a, a really fast track into America. I said yes. So he, they started helping me manage into the States. And then about three weeks after, um, they had Rush Management was here with a guy called John Reed and an American called Patrick Moxie. And they were leaving to go into, into the labels. Patrick, I think, started Ultra. He had a company called Premier that managed DJ Premier and Guru. He went that way, back to the States. John Reed went into, I think, maybe London Records. And Leon Russell asked me to open the Rush office. So I went from managing We Proper Girl Rappers to... At that time, Def Jam was uh, was releasing records through Sony. And I went from doing some local <laughs> girls 
to to managing outside of North America some of the biggest rappers in the world at that time. So I got a real baptism of fire flung in at the deep end. I opened an office in Shepherd's Bush in a place called The Glass House. Aaron was working with me. Yvonne was working with me. Um, Pat Marr was working with me. And uh, and we just started, we ju- I just started doing it. And at that time, I was kind of liaison manager to all these acts outside of America into all the different labels that the acts were putting records out through. More or less, all the records that Sony were putting out were coming out on the Def Jam label. So I then had to liaise with them, had to liaise with London Records, with with Run DMC, and, you know, it was just it was just a crazy time. You said earlier on that you started out as, as an amateur and felt that you were an amateur coming into the business. 100%. At what point did you feel that you crossed that line and you really felt immersed and and that you were able to kind of hold your own in the business as a full-time professional, black professional in the music business? Really, when I, when I had some acts of my own, you know, although you're managing those acts, I then had acts of my own. Technotronic was one of my acts. They did Pump Up the Jam and, and various others. And I think that's when I really came into my own as as a manager, and then with Goldie, and you know what I mean, acts that you know you've signed, they're depending on you. Obviously the Wee Pappers. Um, that's when you really feel that, you know what I mean, you've got the you've got the reins. And what you do is what matters to the guys. You're putting food on the table with them, you're making decisions, you're making videos, you're sitting in marketing meetings and all that, and all the experience that you've learned through the years with other acts as well, you're able to bring that to the table. I just dialing back a minute, because a couple of things that I want to go and get into, and even though you and I have known each other a million years, some of the stuff we've never actually spoken about. So You're not going to start talking about that fight I had outside the office with that nutter. <laughs> <laughs> Strangely enough, no, but we can talk about that if you want. I don't mind. I don't mind. We can go, we can go into it how deep you want to go. <laughs> but maybe we'll maybe we'll leave that for another episode. Maybe we'll just leave that in yeah. as a teaser. We'll leave that people... for the, the bloopers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but my question was, and I hadn't forgotten about that, but it's nice to kind of have that little <laughs> anyway. Uh, yeah. uh, let me just tell you as well on that, just, just so as you know. I've never been interviewed by a policeman until that point, so thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, but we'll get to that point in in our connections again later on down later on down the line. But um, what did you learn from your time at Rush? What did you What did you take away from the whole experience for you? Uh, just Leo and Russell at that time, obviously managing the acts that they were managing, but just just on top of it. You know what I mean? I learned I learned a, a lot of things, a lot of things that I've carried on through my career and that I've kind of tried to instill in the young managers and artists and people around me. Um, 
you know, it, it, it's really funny, and they and they stick with. You. I remember Leo telling me once to to listen. When people are talking, you stop talking, listen to what they're saying, digest it, and then start talking. Because I'd be talking and they'd be talking, and nothing would get get done. <laughs> and one day he just said, "Yo, just chill, listen. I'll speak." You listen, and then we'll get moving. Another thing was paper trailing. You finish a telephone conversation, straight on the email, further to our conversation, and reiterate what was said. Number one, that gets it straight out of your head, onto paper, and into the person that you were speaking to, for them to either, they never heard it like that, they never took it like that, they never understood it like that. It gives them the opportunity to come back and say, no, what I meant was X, Y, Z. But you also have a paper trail now. Because when it's in black and white and people start talking nonsense, that black and white is the thing that just nails everything to the table. So I always do that. And I tell my, my even my son, when you finish a conversation... Further to our conversation, this is what I understood it to mean. And that just puts everybody on point as well. You know, if the plumber comes here and he leaves, <laughs> he'll get an email telling him the same thing. Do you know what I'm saying? So it's just transferable skills that you're able to use in life as as you move forwards. You know, just covering yourself as you're, as you're working from the top to the bottom. You and I have a lot of common acquaintances but a number of very very close friends that that we've worked with over the years and been across how important was it when you first started in those early years to to have that support group of like-minded black males as professionals in the business around you supporting talking to you what did you get from them uh it was was very important because they were in the industry and i wasn't so they'd already been playing the game they knew how to navigate Many a time, Danny would take me aside, no, you can't really say that, and this and that. And it wasn't for any other reason than this is how we get to the end. Do you know what I mean? This You've got A to Z, and this is how you navigate to get there. This is how you'd ask for something. This is how you do something. Marketing, this is what you'd need, and so on and so forth. Because when Danny started, he was in club promotions, you know, worked with Erskine, but he also made records. It was an amazing, and and probably still is if he picked up the tools again, an amazing producer, because the ears are there. So you had those people, you had him around you, you had Erskine around you, who was an an amazing player within the industry all the way to the top. Um, You had Keith Harrison, who, who... who I think at the time was managing Stevie Wonder and still is got a, a great relationship in there. So the guys that I was that I was dealing with, you had also um, Simon Fuller, who was managing Danny at the time, over at nineteen. He had a massive record, and 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 he was all the way to the top in the industry. So you had I had people that I could go to, and and ask advice and get the real coming back that were transparent, that, that that wanted me to learn, not just fobbing me off, but say, right, this is how you do it. Oh, you should never have done that. You should have done it this way. And you just listen. 
and you soak it up and you take out of it what works for you and what doesn't work for you, you leave behind and then you're able to try and adapt from 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 those people and the knowledge that they're willing to give you for nothing. So you're at Rush and things are going well, but there is a point where you decide to do things a little differently. So, so tell us about Rush turning to what, I, if I remember rightly, became NUR. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. You have to move in a certain way. You're in the UK, you know, trying to get more international with what you're doing. It was uh, Chuck D that gave me that name, Noor. Noor Productions. It was a growth. You, you started managing your own acts. Um, Technotronics were, 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 were flying around the world. Um, we, were, we was on the Blonde Ambition tour with Madonna. We was opening up for Sting in, in Sao Paulo. And you kind of drifted more and more from, from, not from your core, you could always reach back in, but you kind of had to start standing on your own two feet and making your own decisions you have to start scaling up you have to start working you have to start you know putting your head down so at what point did you think you know what i need to i need to strike out on my own i need to be i need to have my own company do my own thing and not have that responsibility of rush it was just a gradual separation really like i said you have your own acts you now have to make your own decisions Leo and Russell were doing other things. Leo started looking after Def Jam, the label, then he was more into, into that. Big D was doing the management and Russell obviously was doing Rush Communications, credit cards and this and that. So you, you gradually, and really they wanted me to move to the States and I had a family here and I couldn't make that move. So I wasn't able to, to tie myself in and grow with with them in the States. So I was more of a satellite here. That point is when I decided to make that to make that move and, and strike on out on my own. One of the things that you've been great at is you've always had your finger on the pulse and able to see things very, very early. And that's been a constant thread throughout your time in, in, in the industry. And, you know, as we get towards the end of the journey, people will really understand your influence and importance on, you know, on black British music, you know, whether it be from We Papa Girl rappers and being, in, being around UK rap. But the next journey or the next set of artists that you managed were absolutely critical and influential in the movement of black British music. And of course, one in particular? Uncle Gold's. You know what it was? Because I, I loved hip-hop so much, when uh, drum and bass came along, I, I saw it as exciting hip-hop, faster energy, but using the same beats, because at that time they were taking beats from hip-hop and speeding them up. And I really wanted to be in that, genre in that part of the music and it was British it was made here it was stamped made in England I was trying to get in um, David Munns who ran Polydor gave me a little label at um, called Raiders Records over at Polydor and I was putting a few bits in same time as you know just 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 getting a few bits out and I met Goldie in, in Camden High Street. I don't know. I don't know how I knew him, 
But he was walking in Camden High Street and I pulled over and I said, you know, what are you up to? And I can't remember how I knew. Obviously, I knew him through through the music, but didn't didn't know him. That was the first kind of conversation. He started telling me about this record that he wanted to make. He was he was with um, Digo and them, and he had a thing called Ruffage Crew. So he's putting out some drum and bass records. Um, but he wanted to. He had this idea for this record that he wanted to make that would take you on a journey and this and that and da da da, and and. We ended. He ended up making the record. He made it in Rob, with Rob Playford, an engineer. Made it in Rob's kitchen from morning <laughs> till about six. They could make as much noise as they wanted, and then after six, they had to put the headphones on because the guy came in from work <laughs> next door. <laughs> so anyway, they 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 made this record, and the first time he played it to me, I went to have a listen to it. You know, I'd been hearing it bits and pieces. It was going on. And he played the record, and to my surprise, the record was 21 minutes long. And he was telling me that's his single. And I was like, are you crazy? These a and guys, they're like goldfish. Once they swim around the bowl, that's <laughs> it. You know what I mean? <laughs> Three minutes is max, and you're telling me about some record that's 21 minutes long. And that's what I had to go around and sit with a and guys and play while this record took you on... An immense journey. It was it was it was crazy. People just fell in love with it, you know, from publishers to labels, fell in love with it. It's really weird, and I'm sure he still holds feelings. I was gonna sign it to Clive Black, who was running Warners at the time. Paper was done, was gonna sign on the Monday. It was funny, Danny phoned me up and said to me, Pete Tong wants to talk to you about the record. I'm like, I'm selling it to Clive Black on Monday. <laughs> I was like, yeah, but you should you should talk to Pete. Have a word with Pete. Goldie used to live over in um, over Muzzle Hill kind of area. And we met in England's Lane. We had this little breakfast place we used to go to called Maria's in England's Lane. And Pete came over there. We had a conversation and he was so passionate about the music and, and what he was going to do and how he felt about it and so on and so forth, that Goldie just said, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll sign it to you. So it was funny. I said to Pete, I had the contract with me. I took the contract out that, 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 that I was going to sign with Clive Black. I handed it to Pete Tong. I said, 50 grand. <laughs> and, and give me this back on Monday, and we're in. And he did it to his word, 50 grand on top of what we were getting that was in the contract, and we signed to him on the Monday. And, um, you know, it was history from there. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I kind of entered that journey with you a little bit later on working with working with you over at NUR, but, you know, I often say, that, you know, we use the word genius sometimes, too much and for the wrong reasons but g is an absolute genius goldie is an, ab- is, an, is an absolute genius he's on a different level always a real privilege to kind of spend time in his company and to hear what he's got to say one of the things that people may not realize about you and that particular time is that you were really the gatekeeper of that drum and bass movement you kind of built a scene and built a platform for those guys to go and showcase their talent with labels allowing them 
their moment in the sun, which had never been done before. You didn't just kind of take an artist, you know, you were able to, to build a scene, you know, whether that be through Goldie or Groove or Fab or, or Lemon or Jay or those guys, but also the radio shows as well, which people may not know about. You, you know what it was? It was just when we started, it was really weird because the music was too fast. Oh, we can't put it in adverts, it's too fast. We can't hear it's too fast. By the time it finished, it was the music of the time. You know, I managed Goldie, Groove, uh, Dillinger, Lemon D. Uh, down the line, I did Adam F. Those were my guys. You know, I've got Sarah Sandy managed Frost and and Brian G. And do you know what I mean? It was it was a very much a community of us running running that scene. And then the music started to be made from outside the scene. The French were doing it, the Germans were doing it, the Americans were doing it, Rabbit on the Moon and, and all these different people. You've got Andy C here. You had Shy Effects doing his thing with, you know, with the General Levy thing. And, you know what I mean? It really took hold and was a, was a strong movement internationally the guys were getting radio shows and pushing the music out Groove and Fabio we signed them to labels Pete Tong had Dillinger RNS had Lemon D I signed Groove Rider to Sony um Goldie was still on FFRR at London so we was able to really populate the marketplace and and try as we can as as we still do to bring integrity and credibility to what we were doing, just live up to the music. You know, those guys, the Grooves and Dillingers and Goldie and that, that's that's their thing. <laughs> live or die, it's still their thing. And they will always be the godfathers of, of, of that music, no matter who comes. When you go back and you look at that now, do you think that there was anything you would have done differently? There's always things you would have done differently. You think you're doing the best, but as you go on and you learn more, I learn every day. I learn something new every single day, a different way to skin that cat, a different way to to engage with people, communicate. So, yeah, there are things that I would do differently looking back at it now. But when we was rolling, it was, a, it was a, you was there, you was, you was in it, you was by my side. It, you know, we only could work with the knowledge that we had at that time, do you know what I'm saying? And and in that scene, we were one of the set of people that were running things. One of the things I always remember about that time, you know, there were some great times working with some great artists, but there was a respect about the scene. And there was a respect about what the scene meant to those people. And there was a real desire to try and ensure that it, became as popular as it, it, as it could be without bastardising it or, or or really overly propagating it. And I think that, you know, the guys were very responsible for that, but you were very responsible for making sure that the scene remained honest and true to itself. In a lot of the things you've done, you've always been incredibly respectful about the scenes that you're involved in. You know, obviously you want to commercialise, but you don't want to take away from what it is and you want to be respectful for those, to those artists that are working with it and work with them. Um, sometimes managers don't do that. For me, it's paramount 
the people that I work with now and then were passionate about their music, passionate about what they did, creative. I've never been that guy sitting in studios all night telling people about the kick drum and the hi-hats and, and anything else. I let them do what they do and I believe in what they do and then I take their what they're doing to market and enable them to have as many people listen to their music as possible. You can't be any other way when you've got Goldie and Groove Rider. Those guys are just staunch gigs and gets. They're just, they, they don't make them like that. Do you know what I'm saying? You'll find some kids here and there, but those guys are just all about the music. So having those guys around you and behind you and supporting you do or die, it, it enables me to be able to do a great job. It's like a quick pro quo. Having them enables me to do my thing. Having me enables them to do their thing. So that's always what I've tried to bring to whatever I do is the integrity and credibility do you know what I mean? It's it's like when you go out and you and you know you have to make your mum proud. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? You can't go out there with any foolishness because if she finds out you in you you got a bigger problem than you have outside. <laughs> so it's the same with these guys. I just I just respect them to the max and I just do the best that I can do. So the journey, I mean, obviously you go from Goldie, Fabio Groove, the whole drum and bass thing, and then that disbands and there's another career change, another movement and, an, and another meeting with another one of our influential black professionals in this business, Mr. Ray Cosbert. Ah, Uncle Ray. Indeed. I've known Ray since I came in the business because Ray at Metropolis um, was working with a guy called Bob Angus. And Bob Angus is a promoter that promoted a lot of the, the black music when I started. There was two that I knew. There was a guy called John Curd, who's still in it, Curdy, and there was um, Ray and Bob. When I first brought Della Soul to the UK, Bob and Ray did the first show after they did Three Feet High and Rising. We brought them into the UK. I was managing them at the time, and we had them at the Forum. That was the first show that Della did was at the Forum. Um, we brought Public Enemy in, Brixton. We did Big Daddy Kane at Brixton, Eric B. and Rakim at Hammersmith. So all those shows were between Bob Bob Angus and, and Ray and, and John Curd. Um, and I, I met Ray through working with Bob and himself at Metropolis. I remember we did two nights at Wembley with De La Soul at Wembley Arena. Do you know what I mean? It's ridiculous, public. And we did all of those. And that's where I first came up with myself and Ray's paths crossed. And throughout the years, it crossed, you know, many times. And then it must have been 2010, 2011, Ray was, was managing Amy Winehouse and doing a fantastic job and being dragged all over the place with Amy and um, I had my office and I was you know doing my management and Ray asked me to 
if I'd be up for, for joining him in a, in a management situation because there was a couple of other acts that he was managing as well as Amy, obviously because of the time that she took out of our out of his life. Um, I joined him with my acts, put myself into Metropolis and, um, you know, just started managing acts and, and rolling out. I begged them to let me do a show because I wanted to do what he was doing, which was promoting shows and managing. So he said, <laughs> eventually I broke Bob down, broke him down, and they let me do a show. They gave me £10,000 and I bought Nipsey Hussle into the country and did a show with him, XOYO. That was the first time he'd come into the UK. I did that in conjunction with, with Trapstar. And after I did that show, the guys in the office said I couldn't do any more shows. <laughs> they said, he can't do it. Ray's doing it. We can't have somebody else doing it. Because the show obviously was was... Ridiculous. Live. <laughs> it, was, oh, it was so oh. lively. And it was like, nah, nah. And Bob said, you know, I'll have, I'll have agent promoters leaving me if I let you do another show. So that kind of curtailed my <laughs> my show <laughs> career. Um, but I worked with, with Ray. Um, that's when we started ma- managing gigs. Gigs came out of, of, of a management situation and um, we got a call from Ben Beardsworth and Richard Russell, who ran Excel, because gigs were signed there. And they said, we've got this this guy. Obviously, we knew who he was. Um, we've got this guy. We'd like to send him for a meeting with you. And he came and they came, he, him and Buck came and met um, Ray and I. And we had the meeting in the boardroom. And it was, it was, it was, it was a great meeting. They played us some music that was... That was incredible, um, and we had the the chat, and and they left. It was funny. Years after, when when they told me how that meeting went for them, it was like they'd they'd had so many meetings, and then because before that they were managed by Jack and Archie, Jack Foster now manages Dave with Benny Scars, and Archie works at Capitol Records as as A and R, and. Um, They'd had managed Tinchy and then they managed they managed gigs and so Giggs and Buck had gone round and seen these these managers and stuff and they were like, We couldn't believe it. There was a couple of black guys that we man we met, that was me and Ray, and they were nodding their heads to the music. Because <laughs> because all the other meetings they'd gone to, everybody's just stiff. You know what I mean? Just, just stiff looking. guys, not in the culture, just looking at them, thinking, you know, maybe we could do this or maybe we can. And there they were with two black guys who were just into what they were doing <laughs> and loving it. Um, so that was, that. They, they tell me, is one of the reasons why they, why they came to us. It's been a journey and it's been, you know, amazing. Like you say, I, I, I've kept myself relevant throughout the periods and being able to 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 bring other people through as I'm rolling. So from the Wee Pappers into the Rush thing, into Teptotronic, into Goldie, into the drum and bass thing, into rap with with, with gigs and gets and the guys. And it's just it, it's just a lover of music. I don't look at myself as any record aficionado. 
I'm just a lover of music that I like. I stay in my lane, but through the grace of God, I've been able to look after and manage, be friends with a, with a bunch of artists that I feel is in, incredible. You're in a different position now because you're actually sitting inside a label. When we both started, there were a few of us that could barely sit around a table in a restaurant as, as black professionals, both men and women. And the landscape is very different now. You're actually someone now that can help effect change along with, um, with a number of others. What did you think those changes are needed and how can you help affect that change? When I look at our industry, I look at, I look at here in the UK and I put it against what's been happening in the States. You know, from, from day one, culture has marketed, promoted and worked with culture. Now, you may have some people at the top of the tree that are not part of that culture, but they understand that the culture knows what's going on in the culture. Black, white, Indian, Chinese, whatever it is, they understand. And they, what they do is they allow that culture to work within it. Here, we're still fighting that. We're still having people second guess how we do things and how we look at music. I always say my definition of a pop track is it's popular. If you're selling loads of it, it's popular and it's a pop record. And that can be Drake, that can be Beyonce, that can be Public Enemy, that can be gigs. And we still here don't support that how we should be supporting it. And I think that needs to change. I think the people at the top who are just interested in, in making money and who are not going home listening to our records understand it. But there's, I think there's a, there's a breakdown between them and the actual guys that are going out there and, and, and signing these records and developing. They've even got a, a label, Robots and Humans, where, where the records are done by data. If you've yeah. got a lot of data, a lot of streaming, we'll sign you. I just had a, I just had a, a kid come to me now, uh, an, an independent that was signed to that label, he wanted to put out a record. They wanted to put out another record. They put out the other record. It flopped and they've dropped him. And I'm like, how does that work? But then I said to him, you understand what you were signing into because it's robots and humans. That's what it is. I don't want to say there's no ears there, but just that little situation that he was flying I'm talking about selling millions. One of his tracks did 134 million streams just on Spotify. Tens of millions as he's rolling. He puts one record out, it does a couple of million, and he's out the door. And the record he put out is the record that they wanted him to put out. Right. Crazy. So I think it needs to change from the top. I don't think there's enough due diligence in how they make those changes and who are around helping them to make those changes and those choices. George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter, I think that that was obviously somebody died to, for those changes to be brought in and for people to realise a little bit of what was going on and changes have been made. 
But I think some of the changes have been superficial. There's some that have been really, really good and really, really strong. But I think we do have to go further. I think that we also, as an industry, have to bring people from the outside of the industry in. I've never been in the industry till 20, in the corporate side of it, till two years ago. But there's people out there like yourself and, and Mickey D and, 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 you know, various other black professionals that have guided this industry to where it is and have fought in many battles to get it to where it is outside of the industry. And they should be inside the industry because they've got a hell of a lot to offer. I was hired by Tony Harlow, who's the chairman of Warners. And I think if somebody else was there, I wouldn't have been hired. The support I've had from Max, who's the global chairman, and from Tony and, and the people within the company, I didn't think it was going to be like that. But the support has been incredible. I I see the support in various other labels, but I know it's not like mine. I know it's not like mine. And when they asked me to join, I sat down with with Tony and James Udici, who was head of head of business affairs at the time, and who had but I'd known these people a long time. So they kinda they knew what I do and how I do it. And and the conversation was real easy. And when I went into the company, there was people in there, they also knew. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, Joe Kentish, Ed Howard, um, Bryony. I, I knew these people when I went in there. Austin was in there at the time. It wasn't totally easy because people didn't really... I didn't go and take someone's job. Somebody hadn't left and, and right, you're going to take over from that person. So I went in on my on my own merit and it took me 18 months to get my head around it because I'd never I'd never worked in that industry. But I think I think there's a lot of people that I see outside the industry that could easily be in the industry now helping to nurture and grow our black executives, our artists, our managers with real life experiences. Do you know what I mean? Not from a book. That's what I do within within Warners, as well as signing acts. Um, you know, I sign Central C. I've just signed Nux. I signed JB, NEMS, and various other things. I'm also talking to the young executives on a daily basis, just trying to impart some of of the experiences that I've had, because I want to. We we need to win, because. That's the reality of it. The winning part of it, although you don't want to put it out there, but this is a business. And these guys at the top, the owners and, and of, of these companies, the owners of these companies, they have shareholders. And what happens is they spend money, they make money, the shareholders are happy and it keeps moving forwards. That's why maybe all you hear on the radio now is, is urban music, is black music. Because that's what's making the money. 
the biggest artists out there, the Drakes, the Beyonce's, the, they're urban artists. They're making black music. And because that's popular and that's what's turning over the cash, that's why they're there. If it, if it spins around again and 10 Coldplay's come into place, that's what you'll be hearing on the radio and that's what will be taking the place. And once you realise that it's a business, you take the chip off your shoulder and try and do the best business that you can. And that's a very salient point. And, you know, when you look back, T, do you consider yourself a role model? How, how important is that area for you, mentoring, you know, letting people see what you're doing and how you're doing it? I don't really see myself as a role model. I see my, myself as a role model for my kids, for my children. That's, that's the only people that I see myself as a role model for and that I talk to, you know, on a daily basis. I've got 10 children and I've got 10 grandchildren and I talk to them about what I do, how I do it, as a way of putting a bit of knowledge into them. They don't have to do it, but the same way I will listen to the Simons and the Danny D's and you and whatever, I take out of it what I can use and move forward. So I never say do it this way. This is the only way to do it and you need to do it this way or it won't work. I'm not that guy, but I'll give as much information that you can use or not use. I'm the one that will tell you, you put your hand in there, it's going to burn you. I'm not going to tell you not to put your hand in there. I'm going to just tell you what's going to happen when you, put, when you put your hand in there. So I don't really see myself as a role model. I just see myself as another person able to impart information of on my journey. And hopefully you'll use whatever you want from it to, to help your journey. So you've got this incredible new role. It's not the the end it's really just a new beginning with many more years to come what do you want your legacy to be in this business you know what is really what weird i watched this thing on netflix that i think everybody should watch with a guy that people know in the industry and don't know in the industry um clarence avant and how he helped in so many different areas across the board and he was able to be influential within the entertainment industry to be able to talk to people and put two and two together. If there was a role model in the industry, that would be him for me. Do, do you know what I'm yeah. saying? That would be him for me to be able to talk to Tyson, talk to a, a boxer, talk to, you know, Joe Brown. and You know what I mean? Just talk to people, Michael Jackson, Put, you know what I mean? So many different things that he's able to do and talk to different people. Trenton was around and he helped us. Do you know what I mean? He was a part in, in different people's life, but he actually helped. You could ask him anything and there'd be nothing. You'd be like, mm, no, I can't. Yeah, I, I, I'll tell you. If I know and if it happened to me and I had that experience... I will share it. And that that's, you know, that's all I would want. So I've got to tell this little story at the end because, you know, as you know, Trenton, you and I have been trying to make this happen for, for, for a little while. And 
you know, I know that like many of us, we don't like to talk about ourselves and about what we've done over the years. But there was that Saturday morning just before Christmas where I was pushing my trolley around a well-known supermarket and my phone rang and you were on the end of it. And you'd <laughs> been to, you'd been on a, a couple of days before, I think, uh, since 93 thing. And it was a real surprise to you, I think, that not everybody knew what you'd done in the business about your history and about your legacy. And, you know, I've been lucky because I've travelled the road with you to a certain extent along the way over the past 30 years. So I know how influential and how important and how grateful we should be for to, a, lot, a lot of us to, to what you've done and what you've given to this business. And I know that you were really keen to be able to tell your story. So to finish, one of the things you talked about was our parents being proud. And yeah, listen, I'm, our parents are no longer with us, but would they be proud? Would they look back on your journey and kind of go, you know what, T, we didn't want you to do this because my mum certainly didn't want me to, to, be, to be in the music <laughs> business. She she had had firm designs on me being a lawyer, but it, it worked out okay in the end. Would mum and dad kind of look at you now and go, you know what, son, it was good. Before I answer that, just to go back on that, 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 when I phoned you up, I, I'm, I'm a backroom person. Somebody, somebody said to me, told me something, what, what the people are that I always look at and, and told me what it was. And I never knew what it was. I don't know if they made it up or if it's something, something real, but they, they said to me that there's certain people and I'd look at them and wonder why they were doing it. But they're, it's called main person syndrome. <laughs> and I've never, never heard, I've never of, it, heard anyway. of it. But it's when, you know, like 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 a person that, that that's not the main person but wants to be the main person. So you have you have and you probably know I know you have certain managers that put themselves on front street more than the artists. I, I've never, I've, I, I don't care about that. My thing, my ego is when I see my artists on stage doing their thing or the records in the chart 100%. or they're doing well or they're happy. That's where I get my buzz from. Yeah, I'm part of that team. I don't have to be on there. I don't have to have them saying, oh, thank you, Trent. And I don't have any of that rubbish. I just like to see things that I'm involved with achieve the best that they can. So at that since 93 thing where where Ricky and, and Glyn gave me a fantastic honour um, in Black History Month to award myself um, with a dinner. It's a, it's a dinner. And with a dinner and my friends were there and they in, invited certain other people there from the industry and they spoke about us. And at that dinner... There's a guy that I know very well, his name's Rashid, and he runs Link Up TV. And after people were speaking about myself and Michelle Escoffrey and about what we'd done and this and that, he came up to me afterwards and he said to me, I didn't know you did all that. You know what it was like? It was like when you're digging in the crates and you pick up a, you pick up a, a Lauren Hill record and you put it on, oh, that's amazing. But you didn't know she sampled Anita Baker. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You've yeah. heard something, but you didn't know there was a back to it. 
And he'd heard this stuff about the wee Papa Girl rappers and, and Dillinger and all these other things. And it's like, he said, my history started from Garage. I didn't, it's like he knew there was more, but didn't know certain people played a part in that more. Do you know what I mean? Right. It's like when I tell people I used to manage Eric B and Rakim, they were like, yeah, but I went to that show, I was, I snuck in, I was 13 in Hammersmith Apollo. And rah, rah, rah. I said, yeah, I was backstage getting, running them on stage. So that was just that little piece, because I never would have done it. I would never, I'd, I'd have never have done it because it's just not in my nature. But when he said that, I thought, you know what? I have lived a life. I've, I've, I've got many really good friends around me, um, people that have helped me in the industry, brought me into the industry, nurtured me in the industry. Um, my sister, Jackie Davidson, um, Darkest Bees, who I know has done this before, Aaron. There's so many people, Matt Ross, there's so many people that have helped me on my journey and helped educate me and, as I said, nurtured me. I felt that I had to, you know, come on and, 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 and have the conversation. The big question is, would the parents be proud? I, th- I think so. But I don't know if they would understand because I never had a proper job. As far as my mum's concerned, no matter what house, what car, what anything, what clothes... I, I never had a proper job. Go and get yourself a proper job. When I left school, I was a bus mechanic, apprentice bus mechanic, and I did that. And that for her was a proper job. <laughs> that for her was a proper job. That was, it was a, a trade. trade. You can take that anywhere. Diesel fitter, you can take that anywhere. So for her, but I think I was at, I was at the Mobos. I don't know if it was the last one or the one before. And... Um, Parcelu one and his mum and dad was at the table and we're sitting at the Warner's table and they were there and he got up and went and the, the look on their face number one seat being in that room with all those people and seeing them paying the accolade to their son it was tremendous so it's it's unfortunate that, that, that my parents never had the opportunity to see me do what I do or understand what I do. But I think, I think my children are proud of me. So I think my mum would be proud of me. My mum and dad would be proud of me. And a simple yes or no, before we wrap this up, are you proud of what you've done? Yeah. Yeah, 100%. You know what? I'm so glad you said that because, my friend, you absolutely should be because what you've done is is remarkable um you know i just like to say you know you say we've known each other a long time it's been an absolute honor and a pleasure to, to be able to call you a friend and to see what you've done and what you continue to do and continues to do so well so you know what trenton harris lewis senior vp over at warner's entrepreneur manager but as i said at the beginning more importantly a really good friend thank you for being a guest on the did you know podcast bless you my friend Thank you for inviting me. I'm Adrian Sykes, and this was Did You Know? A Downstreet production. Thank you for listening. Thanks to Trenton for sharing his story. Our thanks as ever to Danny D, partner and true pioneer, to Sean Springer, 
our producer Cass Denton Ella Ruby on the socials and Vega Brothers for our theme music thanks also to Dave Roberts and Tim Ingham at MBW you can now apply to be mentored by the guests of the Did You Know podcast head to our website www.didyouknowpodcast.com for all the information Did You Know is available wherever you get your podcasts make sure you subscribe to never miss an episode and if you've enjoyed this podcast please leave us a five star review and make sure you look out for our next episode of the Did You Know podcast where we talk to Capital Extras Mr Jam about his career in the music business. I mean, I've, I've got a photo of me, aged two years old, at the kitchen table with my Fisher-Price record player playing music. I've always been obsessed by music. I, you know, want to know about music as much as possible. Music was my solace. This was Did You Know. Until the next time. <laughs>